The following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light across in our city and world through the transformed lives of its people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. Now I'm reading from the English Standard Version of God's Word. These are indeed God's words. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. How's everybody doing this morning? Good? Excellent. Excellent. What we're going to do is we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the background of this text. All right. And we're going to spend a lot more time talking about the background of this text than we do actually talking about the text. You've heard this text before. You've read this text before. You've seen this text before. You've preached this text. I mean, some people have preached this text to you over and over and over again. What you probably don't have is the background. And I want to spend time talking about the background because the background is very, very, very helpful in understanding the actual text. Okay? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about the background. This is a prophecy. All right? This is a prophecy. What's what's magnificent about this prophecy is a few things. What's magnificent about this prophecy is the time that it is prophesying to, all right? But what's also magnificent about the prophecy, it's what's happening in the midst of this prophecy coming forward, okay? Because there's a lot of things going on, and it's going to, for me, it blew my mind just thinking about God actually being so majestic and so merciful and so loving that he would even declare this prophecy in the midst of what's going on. Um, And so we want to talk about that, and then we'll actually spend some time talking about the actual prophecy, all right? But the first two points are where we're going to spend a lot of time talking about. The time of the prophecy and the timing that it alludes to, but also the, the setting in which it is happening. And what does that mean for our Christian lives? What does that mean for our own personal walks with Jesus? What does that mean for the church's global mission and the church's effort to live life on mission for Christ as well? And so the first thing that merits discussion is the win of the prophecy. Isaiah shares this prophecy during the reign of Judah's wicked, wicked, wicked 
King, King Ahaz. Now before, if, you, if you've read a little bit of Isaiah, you, 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 you understand that Isaiah has actually went through three kings in the midst of a couple of chapters, all right? Uzziah was the first king. And Uzziah was actually a pretty good king. He was a king that, that walked with the Lord. He was a king that uh, honored the Lord and, 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 and did the things that the Lord called him to do until he began to reap much blessing. And, and as his kingdom increased and the people increased and the property increased and the, and the power increased, uh, King Uzziah got a little bit full of himself. And it was in that moment that he uh, began to do some things that were outside of the will of God and that were unlawful for the king to do. And yet he said, well, I'm the king. I get a chance to do it. I'll do it if I want to do it. And at that point, he was stricken by God with leprosy. And he was cast out of the kingdom. He never returned back to the kingdom again. He died. Well, following that king, there was another king. And that king was the son of, uh, of, the, of the first king who was pretty good and then kind of fell off. And that king had a actually fairly short reign. The first king had about a reign of 50 years. The second king had a, short, a reign of about 16. He came in young, and his reign was short last. And, and also, he didn't have as much gravitas, if you will, as his father did. He didn't have as much sway. He didn't have as much power. And so there began to be a little bit of stirring in Judah under this second king. Things begin to kind of slowly slide off the rails. And that king came in and he was gone, like I said, in 16 years. And, and then came King Ahaz, which is, the, which is who Isaiah is actually speaking to in this text. And King Ahaz reigned for 16 years between, uh, the, the, between 741 B.C., and 726 B.C. And B.C., as we all know, is before Christ, right? So Isaiah's words here were prophesied literally seven centuries before Jesus' birth. 700 plus years before Jesus was born, these words that we read in Isaiah chapter 9, that to us when we read, there is no doubt in our mind, there is no illusions in our mind that this is talking about Jesus Christ. These words were spoken 700 plus years before he ever showed up. As a matter of fact, there's another prophecy that's very, 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 very popular and very, very, very sacred to the Christian church, and that is the prophecy found in Isaiah 53. Would you turn there? Isaiah chapter 53. And in this prophecy, beginning at verse 1 all the way through verse 6, it says this, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one for whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried our griefs. And surely he has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, Jesus Christ, nail piercing through his hands and feet. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is picture-perfect description of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. And that was written nearly 800 years before he ever came. Jesus arrives on earth, and there is a prophecy declaring that he will die for the sins of the world. This, this text, Isaiah 53, Isaiah chapter 9, these two texts in particular are texts that give me so much confidence in my faith. So, so, so much confidence in my faith. When I read these two texts, thinking about the Savior and thinking about the fact that the Savior's, the anticipation of the Savior was being declared from the, from, the, from the mouth of God down to the mouths of the prophets nearly eight centuries before he ever showed up. Matter of fact, there's another prophecy, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 through 17. If those, if those two prophecies wasn't impressive enough, there are several prophecies throughout Isaiah. We won't highlight all of them this morning, but this one in particular. Therefore, verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. And what days is Jesus, or what days is God talking about through Isaiah, the king of Assyria? The word Emmanuel means simply God with us. And this Emmanuel who will come from the womb of a virgin that was declared nearly 800 years before he showed up, will bring a blessing to the people because he chooses good instead of evil. He's the only one that has the, has the, the capability, has the ability to choose good instead of evil. Every single one of us that have ever been born from our mother's womb, when we come forth, there is no way that we can actually consistently, perfectly choose good except for this one. Again, these are powerful prophecies. However, Isaiah's words in chapter 7 are not without their share of an immediate judgment. In verse 17, Isaiah declares that there will also be a judgment that is more immediate than, his, than this promised Messiah due to the peoples and to the king and the king, King Ahaz's lack of trust in their God and their continued disobedience. This judgment is coming in the form of a king. King Assyria, the king of Assyria with his mighty army. And so he says, we're going we're gonna to receive this great savior. We're going to receive this Emmanuel. But before this Emmanuel comes, judgment is coming. And this is the tension that you feel throughout Isaiah. The wickedness and the idolatry and the turning away from God on display constantly in his people and in their leaders invites God's judgment. And, and, the, and, and that judgment brings a tearing down in order that the way may be prepared for God's hope and God's restoration of his people through his appointment of a greater leader, a better leader, a greater king, a perfect king. This is, the, this is what you see consistently throughout the book of Isaiah, this tension. 
This tension is in chapter 7. Isaiah is speaking with the king of Judah, King Ahaz, in the midst of a time where Judah is facing tremendous turmoil. Two countries are bearing down on Judah right now, Syria and Judah's own people, Ephraim, other word, in other words, Israel. They're bearing down on Judah right now. And this news is sending Ahaz and all the people in a state of panic. As a matter of fact, chapter 7, verse 2, it literally says that. When the house of David was told Syria is in a league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, the king, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Their heart shook as they thought about these two countries bearing down on them. And how many people know that we do crazy things when we're operating in fear? So God sends Isaiah to speak to Ahaz to tell him, basically, calm down. I got this. And despite his wickedness and despite the waywardness of the people, God sends Isaiah to declare a sign to Ahaz that God will be there and God will defend him from their enemies if Ahaz will just trust him. That's what he requires. However, Isaiah continues, if you refuse to trust him, If you refuse to trust God for your deliverance, then you will fall at the hand of your enemies. Ahaz's response to Isaiah's challenge to him from God is in verse 12 of chapter 7. Beginning at verse 10, it says, again, the Lord said to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol and high as the heavens. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. So so hear what's happening now. The Lord requests that Ahaz ask him for a sign, any sign. Ask me for any sign, any sign as evidence that I will be there in the midst of your despair. Ask me for any sign that despite your wickedness, despite your lack of trust, despite your idolatry, and it's plenty of it right now in this time, I will still be willing to give you matchless mercy through divine deliverance. Ask for any sign to show you that. Any sign, anything you can think of, ask for it, and I'll give it to you right now. I'll show you that I'm here. That's how much I want to deliver you. And to that, Ahaz says, eh, I don't want to test you by asking for a sign. It is... It is classic distrust in God covered in religious language and fluff. Now, I need you to understand that. That's important to you. How often does power clothe evil intent or intentions that reflect a distrust in God? How often does it clothe it in religious language and fluff? I can think of a few examples. These kind of bait and switches where God's name is invoked to advance our own purposes rather than God's purposes may fool a lot of people, and it does, but it doesn't fool God. And so this is Isaiah's response on behalf of God to Ahaz, verse 13. He said, hear them, O house of David, talking to Ahaz, he's from the house of David, the lineage of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? He basically says to Ahaz, your leadership has tired the people that you lead. 
Your leadership has weighed them down. They are running amok. They are in idolatry. Countries and nations are see your weakness now and are bearing down on you from all sides. You have wearied the people, and now you seek with your weak and your dishonest and your tired responses to God to tire him as well. Ahaz is not doing God any favors by saying, don't show me a sign. He is ultimately saying, because he's saying, don't show me a sign, because he doesn't want to see one. Do you understand that? He has already made his decision as to how he is going to handle the incoming threat and is not going to be to rely on God. So he covers, this, he covers his intentions up in religious language and says, I don't want to test you. But the reality is, is that he's going to try and broker a deal with Assyria. You can see that through Chronicles and, and Kings and other places in the Scriptures where it gives you the, the actual story of this. He's going to try and broker a deal with Assyria, the, the, the king that God says is coming to destroy him. The king who is bringing with him all of his pagan practices. The king that is bringing with him all of his idolatrous, idolatrous practices. He's going to try to broker a deal with them in hopes that, right, if I can get a deal with them, maybe they won't destroy us. When his God is saying, ask me for a sign that I'm here, and you got it. When we look outside of Christ for our salvation, when we look outside of God for our salvation, when we turn to other people and we turn to other things to serve as our functional saviors, we set ourselves up to be destroyed by those very people and those very things. He ends up thinking that he's going to broker a deal. But it's actually this decision that leads to a quicker demise for the people of Israel, or the people of Judah. Does it make sense? Assyria shakes their hand, yeah, sure, all right, we're, we're good, we're good. And they swoop in and they run complete roughshod in the land. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 5. The Lord spoke to me again because this people, this is God describing the, the destruction and devastation that Assyria brings. But, but the Lord spoke to me again because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. In other words, because you've rejected the peaceful waters that I were proposing to bring you, if you would just trust me, because you've went outside of me then I'm going to let the king come. I'm going to let the king of, of Assyria come. And when he comes, in all of his glory, the rivers that he brings, the might that he brings will rise over all the channels and go over all of its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah, and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. So he says, hey, listen, he's coming, and when he comes, Everything is going to be destroyed. Everything is going to be touched. Everything is going to be wiped out as a flood comes through a, a land. But this is where the hope begins, believe it or not, because at the end of that, he says something very odd. He says, oh, Emmanuel, oh, God with us. Despite Judah and Ahaz's insistence on going outside of God for their survival and for their relief, despite the lack of a perfect king and despite the lack of a perfect uh, people for that king to rule, 
Despite even God, uh, despite even God bringing about his judgment, his mercy is always peeking through those dark and dreary clouds. Ready to shine in all of its immaculate light. This is where hope begins for Judah and King Ahaz. Even in the midst of those depressing words in chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Oh, Emmanuel. And then he says this in verse 9 and 10. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Oh, Emmanuel, he begins. And how does he end? For God is with us. Oh, Emmanuel. You see that? So this Emmanuel, O Emmanuel at the beginning and O Emmanuel at the end is actually bracketing a declaration that God is making. And he's saying, hey, people, all the other nations that see my people and, and see their weaknesses, come on, strap up, bring everything you got, but you will not destroy them completely. Why? God is with us. God is with us. You see that? My people will not be totally destroyed because I am giving them me. Here's a question for you. How bad do you have to be to be outside and away from the limits of God's mercy? How bad do you have to be? I mean, King Ahaz was completely wicked. He invited pagan practices into his kingdom. He took the vessels in the temple and destroyed them, in God's temple, and destroyed them. The scripture says that he even placed altars all over Jerusalem for people to come and worship pagan gods. So he took all of the temple's vessels and destroyed them and put altars for pagan gods through God's city for, for other gods to be worshipped. He didn't stop there. King Ahaz even sacked or even put his own sons on the altar as a burning sacrifice. This man was wicked. And if you're looking for me to say that the people rebelled against him, you won't hear that. In fact, they participated in this idolatry alongside him. And yet in the midst of this wickedness, in the midst of this craziness, there is God's declaration, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God, be with us. How bad do you have to be to escape the reach of God's mercy? And here's the answer. Whatever it is, you're not bad enough. If God can declare in the midst of this chaos that I will be there and that I am going to send my son to right the ship, I am going to send him through, through the womb of a virgin to set things in order. I am going to send him to establish an eternal kingdom once and for all. If God can do that in the midst of this, then certainly he can do it in you. Abraham finds, Abraham finds out that he's not bad enough after countless lies, right? 
David finds out he's not bad enough after he sets up literally a soap opera type of drama, right? Sleeps with another man's wife, sends the man to be killed on the front lines. Wife is pregnant, ends up having a baby. I mean, it's complete and total soap opera. And yet he finds that he is not outside of the reach of God's mercy. Peter finds out after denying that he ever knew Jesus that he wasn't outside of the reach of God's mercy. Paul finds out after setting up shop to kill and persecute and destroy and imprison Christians, people that are doing the work of God, that he's not outside of the reach of God's mercy. I'm sure there's not a person in this room that would want a book written on their deepest and darkest thoughts. No one in this room wants a 24-hour surveillance that has been following you for the last 20 to 30 to 40 to 50 years. No one wants that record because you say, listen, there are some things that I am not proud of. But let me tell you this, that does not mean you are outside of the mercies of God. Because despite all of that wickedness, yours, mine... Abraham and others, we have a promise in the form of a virgin-born child that we call Emmanuel, God, with us. The prophecy that God will send a greater king and that, and that king will literally be God with us is so amazing, not just, not just because of when it happens, which is 700-plus years ago, but the prophecy is so amazing or just as equally amazing because it happens for such a desperately and deeply messed up people like Ahaz and Judah and us. The love of a good, good father often comes, um, often is shown uh, to be its brightest in, in the midst of his toughest forms of discipline. Because, it, because what ends up happening is that in the toughest moments of discipline, there's in close proximity his greatest displays of mercy. Have you ever seen this before? Anybody? Let me give you an example. So my father, when he used to discipline, take the strap to me, right, wasn't fun. Wasn't fun. Dad, dad was a big guy, was not fun, did not enjoy it one bit, all right, did not look forward to those moments. But it, was, it seemed like it would be in those moments that after that happens and he gives me a little time to be mad and angry and kind of, you know, clam up and go in my room and shut the door and just kind of weep and cry, after a few moments he'd invite me back. And he would say, he would say, son, the only reason, the only reason I would have to do something like that is because I love you so much and I don't want to see you go wayward. I heard my dad say I love you. I heard my dad say I love you more when I was getting whoopings than I did when I wasn't getting whoopings. So in, in, the, midst, in the midst of the toughest displays of discipline, oftentimes is the closest proximity of mercy. And so here is Judah, which is about to get dealt with, right, in a major way. And in the midst of this major discipline that's coming, God says, I got you. There's someone coming. There's someone that I'm sending, and he's going to make it all right. Why do you need to hear that, right? Because it's like, okay, doesn't really feel like you got me right now. Why do I need to hear that right now? Well, the same reason that I needed to hear that right now, because in, in that moment where my dad gave it to me, because in the midst of the toughest discipline, that's when the greatest doubts of that love exist. You're sitting there saying, man, why is he so hard? Does he even, he even care about me? Does he even love me? 
And it's in, it's in those moments. Have you ever been there? Have you ever found that it was in those moments that also with that discipline came God's sense of mercy in such a pronounced way in your life? So it's in this moment that we have hope. And that's where we're close in Isaiah chapter 9. So turn there. With this king, we receive the promise of Christmas. Surrounded in hopelessness, surrounded in chaos, surrounded in idolatry, surrounded in impending doom coming from nations on all sides, God speaks through his prophet a message of hope. He first declares that there'll be light that will replace the darkness in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them his light has shone. The words of hope we hear from those situated in Zebulun and Naphtali. Or these are rather the first words we hear, the first words of hope we hear are for those situated in Zebulun and Naphtali. Now why is that? Why are these the first places that we hear words of hope? Well, these were the first people, according to uh, history, that were hit by Assyria. And so Assyria brought the thunder of their mighty army to this particular region first. This is the place that experienced darkness on the front end. Does that make sense? And so God, just being like God, brings, right, brings the first people that experience the darkness. He also is, ensures that they're the first people to experience the light. You say, how does that happen? Well, Matthew tells us. Matthew tells us in chapter 4 of his book that now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory, listen, of Zebulun and Naphtali. So he goes to this place. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Matthew quotes it basically verbatim, a little bit. A little, a little change in the Hebrew, but he quotes it pretty close. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So Jesus goes there, and that's where ministry starts for Jesus, believe it or not, because he says this. He says, from that time Jesus began to preach. So the first people that saw the destruction and saw the judgment of God, this shows you this love, right? This shows you this mercy, is the first people that experienced the light. And Jesus, when he preached, what does he preach? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So notice that right out of the gate, the manner in which the light shines is not political. Right? They suffered political damage. They suffered political chaos. They suffered political darkness. But the suffering of the political was a result of the spiritual, wasn't it? Does that make sense? The reason why their political plight was so great was because of their spiritual damage. And so Jesus comes writing the spiritual by saying what? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He brings the light to the first people that saw destruction. 
This shows that while destruction and darkness was probably most thought to be a political one, ultimately it was a spiritual one. And Jesus came to repair that. He gives joy in the place of sorrow. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 3, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Through Christ, the sorrow of sin and the destruction that it creates and brings is replaced with enduring, eternal, and sustained joy. Remember that upon the arrival of the sun to the earth, it was the angels of heaven that declared, right? We bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Does that make sense? That, that upon the arrival of Emmanuel comes lasting joy. It's not, it's, it, so, so the joy wouldn't come in a political victory. The joy wouldn't come when we... When we um, was able to grab all of the land from all of the people. The joy wouldn't come from any other source but the Messiah. The Messiah is what brings the joy. He says that this joy will be a joy like before you were, uh, the re they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. In other words, it's like, it's like the joy that you receive when you get a bountiful harvest. It's like the joy that you receive when you win and you get a chance to get all of the spoil from your victories. In other words, it's like the joy that you receive when you get your full portion of a thing. It's like the joy that you receive when what you've been given is abundant and overwhelming. And that's the joy that the Messiah brings. That's the joy that Emmanuel brings. Verse 4 says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, for his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. It talks, it's highlighting the, 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 the ideal of Gideon and, and, and the battle there in Midian. But it talks about the fact that God will trade freedom for the oppression. Does that make sense? That through Emmanuel, we shall receive real freedom. We've talked about freedom just a couple of weeks ago, right? Matter of fact, just last week, we talked about freedom. And so I won't dive too deep into that, but let's think. Obviously, we're still talking spiritual, and so he's talking about spiritual freedom, not just simply freedom of physical bondage, even though that's important, but more importantly, he's talking about freedom of a spiritual nature that Emmanuel brings. Freedom from the things that's truly destroying us. Freedom from the thing that's truly bringing impending doom to our lives. Verse 5 says, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. In other words, he's trading peace for war. Does that make sense? It's, it's, it's in this text that we hear the title defined of Emmanuel defined, or, or, or associated with Emmanuel, associated with God, Prince of Peace. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't just mean the external conflicts, but it also means internal ones. Does that make sense? That there's, an, that there's an internal conflict between us and God. 
because of our sin. And Ephesians 2 talks about that eternal internal conflict. Colossians 1 declares, that, uh, uh, declares to us about that eternal conflict. It tells us in Ephesians 2 and verse 12 that we were at a time separated from Christ, alienated from Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. It tells us that at a point in time or, or, or when Jesus rescued us that we are no longer strangers, no longer aliens, but fellow citizens with God. It tells us that, that in Ephesians 2, that through Christ, verse 14, for he himself is our peace, the prince of peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So not only does the prince of peace bring us internal peace between us and God, but the prince of peace brings us external peace between one another, making us one. That's why unity is so important, because it's a reflection of the Savior. Does that make sense? One of my, one, one, one of my brother pastors over in Atlanta, during, during some of the racial conflict that we had last year and this year, um, they, they, they spent a time uh, in, of intentional prayer in the city um, on their front lawn at the church. And, and, and it was during that time that, that, that John spoke, John O. He spoke and he said, listen, God is not simply interested in ceasefire. He's not simply interested in all of us putting our guns down, right, and stop and stop hurling insults over at each other. He's not interested with just that. God is interested in making enemies friends. Does that make sense? And so what, and so what he's doing is not just simply trying to stop you from shooting and killing one another. What he's trying to do and what he is doing by building his church from all people, all nations, all tribes, all tongues, is he's taking people that were once enemies and saw themselves as only enemies. He's saying, now you're family, not just simply putting up with each other, but bearing with each other. Does that make sense? Verse 6, for unto us, or for to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Child is born, wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in a manger, and given a name, Jesus, a name that is above every name. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. When you see Wonderful Counselor in Isaiah, when it's used again, it's actually referring to God. And so he gives you no mistake on this. That who he's speaking of, who he's talking to, who he's talking about, is God in the flesh. Matter of fact, he calls him in the next word, mighty God. Again, language that he associates in this text later on throughout Isaiah, you hear mighty God referred to, referring to God the Father himself. Everlasting Father, even though he's the Son, but he's the everlasting Father, meaning that he, from him, Source, the source of life. Does that make sense? And we see that in Colossians 1, that he is the source of all things. And the Prince of Peace, which we have discussed. The fact that he has come to right the ship, not just between you and God the Father, but he's come to right the ship between us, each other. It says in verse 7, of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. Do you hear that? The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, the Bible says, that starts small. 
but continues to expand and continues to grow. God has this, guys. Amen. Well, sometimes we talk, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Sometimes things look very chaotic and very out of control. But God is building his kingdom, and it begins with his son. His kingdom, his increase, will see no end. His peace, there will be no end. Peace between God, peace between man, God is building and increasing. And when this is all said and done and this earth vanishes away and this earth passes away, we will see the full culmination of that. Don't you want to be there? Don't you want to be a part of that? This is what Advent is supposed to be doing in your heart, right? As you read these texts, as you, as you see these texts and you study these texts with your families and spend time praying, these things are supposed to be wetting the appetite what God is building through Jesus. It's supposed to make you long for the day where you look and you say this peace has no end. This government, his rule, his reign has no end. It's only increasing. On the throne of David, over his kingdom, so it comes from the lineage of David, and we'll talk about that next week, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So if God is establishing, let me, say, let me say this before we wrap. If God is establishing justice through Christ, then to say that you should have no concern for it is inconsistent. Does that make sense? Now, how you have concern for it may vary from what you see in media and all that kind of stuff. But to say you should have no concern for it is inconsistent. The Old Testament, Micah chapter 6, verse 8, says... Will, oh, he has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. It says the offerings are good, the offerings are great. It says the Lord will be, will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He says, this is what you are supposed to do. Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with your God. To say that you should not be concerned with justice is to have an incomplete and insufficient faith. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, when he was bringing down harsh criticisms on the Pharisees, he said... Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, and deal, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy. If Jesus is coming to establish a kingdom and build justice, for you to say that you should not be concerned with it is inconsistent with your faith. You should be concerned when people are trampled on, beginning with the unborn and leading all the way to those in, in nursing homes. You should be concerned with everyone on that end of the spectrum from beginning to end, making sure that people are being treated fairly. Because you're representatives of this king, this King Emmanuel that is coming to build an eternal kingdom. You are his ambassadors. And so you represent him in that way. I want to invite you to to be a part of this king's kingdom. All of the kings that have ever lived on this earth have ruled imperfectly. 
They have ruled sinfully. They have failed. Even in their greatest of successes, they have met failure. And none of them can provide you with lasting, sustained, eternal joy. None of them can provide you with eternal life. No matter how many political victories you receive, none of them can provide you with eternal life. And none of them can fix your sin condition, no matter how many laws are passed. It is only one king, only one king that fixes the things that plague us the most. And it's that king I invite you to come and to trust with your lives. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we give you praise, glory, and honor. Would you help us, Lord God, to trust you? May we not move outside and trust in other people as salvation, other things, other institutions that present themselves as mighty. May we trust in you, Lord God. Father, we love you, we thank you, we give you all the praise, we give you all the glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.